So good, isn't it, to be able to be here tonight? It is a privilege, yea, it is a great honor that has been given to you and me to assemble for the purpose that we have to gather as the shade of this Lord's Day comes to its conclusion to yet meet yet a second time for most of us today. We worshiped earlier today and now the privilege of doing so again. We always like to encourage not only our membership in terms of being thankful for the presence of each of us, but also the visitors who've come our way. We want you to know how happy we are that you're here, and we'd like to extend an invitation to come back and be with us at any opportunity that you might have. For just a few moments this evening, may I invite you to consider a four-letter word. You can see it on the wall to my left. And in many ways, I suppose in our society, some might look upon it as a rather dirty word. But I think tonight, as we reflect upon some of the teachings of the Word of God, we'll be reminded yet again that God's Word touches every facet and every aspect of each of our lives. There is no stone left unturned. Every thought is to be brought under captivity to the matter of the Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. And you'll notice with me tonight even the consideration of the work that you and I do. I left that title in the way that I did it because as we see the application in a moment, I think we'll each be impressed with some of the things God's Word has to say to all of us. These introductory remarks will motivate us and at least get the matter going for us this evening. Isn't it true that as we reflect on what it's like to be a human being, one of the things I'm sure that so readily comes before us is the work that we do. It may well be that you or I have a job and five or maybe even six days a week, you go and labor under this particular matter of the work that you do. Oftentimes that work can be very encompassing. Often it can be very demanding. And not only that, sometimes the circumstances in which we work are less than ideal. Tonight, though, what does the Word of God have to say to you and me about the circumstances of that work and maybe something we can carry into the new year as we labor in the way that God would have us to do it? It might well be, as you come to the close of that slide, I hope that our study tonight will be a practical thing. It'll be a useful thing as we think about the matter of work. These opening comments lead us directly to this. When you think about work... These comments come from a number of studies that have been done relatively recently in our land. Maybe you and I often would be quick to say these things, but maybe we've heard others make statements about them as well. I suppose it was common at one time to consider a 40-hour work week. You would work eight hours a day for five days a week, and then you had the rest of the time for yourself, be it family demands or demands at the house. It seems as though recent studies have indicated many individuals are working more than 40 hours a week, some substantially more. And as you think about the other opportunities, sometimes our bosses might well say, you've got a cell phone, I'll communicate with you that way. You have email, you actually can take your personal computer home and sometimes even expectations are there. Have this done by the time Monday morning comes. So sometimes individuals work at night or even over the weekend. The number of hours oftentimes is demanded in such a way that it seems often it may be well more than 40. Aside from all of that, there are times when the work that we do often brings a very negative connotation. Maybe the circumstances are not very pleasing. 
Maybe even it's quite inconvenient. That negative light, you might well notice, sometimes your boss can act in a way that you wish he wouldn't. Maybe your co-workers, again, behave in ways you would much prefer it to be different. I say all of that to say, all of us are well aware, sometimes work circumstances can be very unusual and often very challenging. That doesn't change anything, though, about the character of what might be brought to your mind and mine. Maybe you even very much dislike your work. To say all of that is to say this. What does the Bible have to say about it? Are there some principles that you and I might utilize to assist us, to help us, so that we might look upon the work that we do in the light of what God would wish us to know? As we turn the slide to come to the next one, one of the first things that seems useful to consider is, where did this work ever get started? Some might be under the impression that it all started after Adam and Eve made the mistake that they made. After all, isn't it true that when they in fact committed sin in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it true that after that God said to Adam, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread? It is true, God said that to him. But our question goes back prior to that. might be interesting for you and I to notice that the sentence of work that God placed upon the human family, the characteristic nature of that work predated the sin in Eden. Would you look with me at the following? In Genesis 2, verse number 15, this was still while Adam and Eve were sinless. These words were stated to them. God had fashioned this garden called Eden, and inasmuch as He placed them in it, and it's still fascinating to notice that God gave them this task. They were to dress it and to keep it. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because again, that was before they committed sin. Notice work was not merely a sentence due to the sin they committed. They were to be productively engaged in the activities of dressing and keeping the garden long before they committed any sin. Isn't it true then that in that consideration we notice that God deemed it a healthy thing for them to have something to do? The productive nature of what would associate to the activities and the ongoing way of dressing and keeping the garden. Maybe it's interesting to observe in that light again, that was well before the sentence of curse that came with their partaking of that forbidden fruit. Maybe it's also true in light of that. You'll notice the admonition along that line runs very much throughout the Word of God, doesn't it? The wise man Solomon, that preacher, declared these words in Ecclesiastes 9, verse number 10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Now remember, Solomon was the king. He was one who was well equipped to where he could give orders to everybody else. But yet, by inspiration, he made note of the fact, whatever your hand finds to do, of course, realizing that it's a wholesome thing, but do it with your mind. That isn't all. Notice what follows in terms of that statement, that description of idleness as you and I see it in the Word of God. Maybe you and I remember parents or grandparents or other friends who would make comments about how it wasn't wise to be idle. Well, in many ways, those things are found in the Bible, aren't they? At least some principles like these. 
May I ask you to notice some of the things that idleness brings. That is to say, the one who specifically could be laboring but chooses not to do so, look at what God's Word promises in light of that particular set of choices. In Proverbs 19, verse 15, it'll bring want. It'll bring poverty. That is to say, involving yourself in idleness, when in fact you understand the character and the need of work, you'll be a person of want, a person known for poverty. In addition to that, in Proverbs 31, 27, wasn't it true even the virtuous woman was known for the fact that her hands were applied to carry out the things needful so that there was no want in her family? All their needs were satisfied and met. Isn't it fascinating to reflect in whether man or woman, God doesn't expect us, doesn't want us to be given to idleness and slothfulness. Maybe it's in finality to that we have this rather unforgettable sentence in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. What else did the inspired writer say? If a man won't work, neither should he eat. Now you and I know that there are individuals who've taken advantage of the opportunities that God has made available to them. And they've purposely given themselves to laziness and yet they have seemingly eaten just fine. In the ancient day, there was a sentence that we find it written in a place like that one. Paul even affirmed that in the character of the church, if a man won't work, he should be disfellowshipped for that. If a man purposefully chooses in laziness and slothfulness not to work, those are grounds for disfellowshipping because he needs to take care of himself and his family. And if he won't work, then he ought not eat. Now those are strong words, aren't they? But yet that's what's found in 2 Thessalonians 3. You and I have come to live in a day and in a time when, again, the characteristic means of work is often looked upon very differently. Some look upon it insultingly. They prefer not to work if they can get by with doing so. But God says it's good to be productively involved in these things. You'll notice as you close that slide with me, Another set of things that come from this refusal to work. Decay. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 18 says, Look upon the house or those things that belong to a man who refuses to work and you'll see it deteriorate. He won't take care of it, but it will decay over the course of time. All of us know what's involved in upkeeping the things that we've been permitted to take care of. Our house, our cars, and things like that. But that man who won't work, you'll notice it decays. That's a poor reflection on his choices, isn't it? You'll notice one final thing. Sometimes if we allow idleness to be the guiding thought to our life, it will bring us into a station. It will bring us into a position in life that may well be rather unfavorable. Notice with me the wording of Proverbs chapter 12, verse 24. The language there is again rather strong. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 24 reads as follows. As you think about the presentation that's given, notice again the wise man Solomon made this statement. But oh, how strong it really is. The text reads like this, The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. The person who is diligent will be the leader 
the one who is diligent shall be often blessed in such a way he'll be recognized in a position of leadership. But you'll notice the second part of the verse said, the one that's slothful shall be under tribute. He'll be paying the other one. He'll be the one who may find himself as a servant to the one who's diligent. Isn't it true that often then the one who chooses to be idle, many privileges and blessings of life may well be taken from that one. Isn't it true that you and I find throughout the Word of God an admonition then to not be idle, but to be those busy and known to be engaged in productive work? That isn't all the Bible has to say, though. And so as our journey continues, the next slide will take us even further. Would you note this with me, that in other places in the Proverbs, you notice that those that were known for slothfulness were described as wasteful. They were described as prodigal. Not only that, they were said to be unproductive. It's almost interesting to notice the humor that might well go with this statement, but in Proverbs 26, verse 14, the following statement is found. As the door turneth upon its hinges, so doth the slothful upon his bed. Now you and I, as we look upon a door, we know that it turns on its hinges. It was made for that purpose. But there's a lazy man who could be working and he turns on his bed that way, just like a door on its hinges, whereas he ought to be involved in the productivity that would come with his life. He chooses, he chooses to be idle in the way that's not good. Isn't it interesting then as you and I think about the sentence of the Bible toward idleness, we come to yet another one. One of the things that still is true, that idleness affords the opportunities for sin. If you're busy and if you and I are engaged in what's productive and worthwhile and wholesome and good, our mind is motivated in a way to where it isn't sitting idle, neither are our hands. But if we're idle... It knows the very times when the devil will frequently find occasion to bring matters of temptation. Paul said that in 1 Timothy 5 verse 10. There, under discussion specifically, were younger widows. Now, Paul rather carefully wrote, Don't take those ladies into the number. they got to be at least 60 years old, for example. And so these ladies that are younger than that, even though they're widows, don't take them into the number. Because if you do, they'll be idle. They won't work with their hands. You're providing everything for them, and so in that idleness, they will wax wanted, and there will be occasions for sin. I'd submit to you there's a great lesson in that for all of us. If we sit idly by and not engage ourselves in the work that would be appropriate and that which God would endorse, we give our mind occasion for the devil to bring sin before us. We all know that the devil today has more particular technological tools he can use. You sit around idle with a cell phone, you can look at things you ought not see. Same thing's true on a computer. The same thing's true sitting in front of a television. But yet if we're busy and if we're given to the work God would have us to do, there won't be near as many occasions you see for those kind of temptations. Those kinds of considerations are very wholesome for each of us, aren't they? It might well be as we come near the close of that slide. Isn't it true that in 1 Timothy 5.8 we have this injunction, 
Paul made a very heavy statement and a very great consideration on that man who wouldn't provide for his own. Paul said he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Here's an individual who if he refuses to work and provide for himself and his family, he is labeled an unbeliever. He's labeled an infidel. That's a serious sentence, isn't it? May none of us be given to that kind of ultimate designation. Jesus was known for working, wasn't He? Didn't He say that I must work the works of Him that sent me while it's day, for the night cometh when no man can work, John 9 verse 4. The Lord Himself went about doing good, Acts 10 38. And as He did, of course, He had the opportunity to bring so many to the knowledge of the truth. One last passage on that slide, Philippians 2.12. Doesn't it remind all of us that this matter, this sentence of work, not only carries with it the kinds of thinking we've noticed so far, but even our own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do you and I have work to do if we ever expect to entertain heaven? Are there works that we must be involved in if we expect to leave this life pleasing to God? We know the answer to that, yes. In fact, that inspired apostle asserted, work out your own salvation. He didn't say that we're going to merit it, but there is work we must do. Having looked at those features and those aspects of this idea of work, I thought that we'd basically use the rest of our time tonight to give thought to, again, our on-the-job considerations. Come tomorrow morning or the other days of the week when you and I proceed to the workplace, what are some things the Bible might well share with us that can help us to provide us with a proper attitude, to set in us the considerations that might be healthy and good for us so that our labor will be recognized by God in the most fruitful, most productive way. And as we begin that journey, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6? We will be looking primarily at two passages in the remainder of the lesson tonight, and the first one will be drawn from Ephesians 6, the second from Colossians chapter 3. As we well remember, Ephesians 6 begins with some statements one by one to various individuals concerning the responsibilities that God has given them. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, bring up your children the way, y'all, the, the, the way that is the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You'll notice the marching orders then that God has given to various classes of people. Often, though, as we come to verse 4, maybe we stop in that chapter, at least for a while, until we get to verse 10. But let's at least for a moment notice the in-between verses. Verse 5, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. The days of the Roman Empire were days in which there were slaves, There were bond servants, individuals who that was their life. They served as a slave to somebody else. The Roman Empire had millions of these slaves. You'll notice in the Ephesian letter, Paul, in fact, addressed those slaves. It might well be that you and I would be of a disposition to think, well, you don't have to be a particularly good slave. 
Short sight your master if you can. Often he's mean to you. He perhaps demands things of you that are unreasonable. It's okay if you don't particularly serve him well. That isn't what Paul said. He said again, servants, be obedient to them. But what if he's mean to me? Doesn't change what Paul wrote. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters. According to the flesh with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Slave, if you're a Christian, you realize you serve a higher master. Oh, I understand that this person who is your physical master, he gives you your orders from day to day, but don't ever forget the fact that as a Christian, you serve a far higher being than him. And you'll notice verse 5 said, "...as unto Christ." as you carry out your tasks to the day, even as a slave, you realize that you're serving in that activity the Christ who bought you. Paul wasn't even finished yet. Notice the next verse. Not with eye service, as men pleasers. Maybe I'd be tempted to perhaps do a halfway decent job. I'll just do enough to get by so that he isn't mad at me, but I won't really do my best. Paul said, don't do that. Not with eye service as men pleasers. You'll notice the actual meaning of that word in the original language is this, service rendered without dedication. Notice eye pleasers. Again, I'll do a halfway decent job, just enough to get by. But after all, I really don't like being a slave, and so I won't really do that good a job. Paul said, don't do that. As a Christian, you serve a higher master than him. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but now finish the verse with me. But as the servants of Christ, doing the will of, doing the will of God from the heart. Slave, you realize that although your tasks may not always be favorable, and although the kind of life you live may not be looked upon with honor... As a Christian, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, even as a slave you're doing it. You behave and conduct yourself as you should, and you always, verse 7, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Maybe that slave is telling, or that master is telling you, wash dishes, sweep the floor, go take care of the crops. Whatever you do, Recognize that you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. As you do that, verse number 8 says, Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Now those are strong marching orders, aren't they? The tasks that you and I are called on to do each day, may we not lose sight of the fact that those tasks, we are representatives of the great kingdom of God. Whatever it is that we're doing at work, at school, in the community, in the neighborhood, we are representatives of the great kingdom that was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. You'll notice in the Colossian letter, these ideas in some way are even extended. Let's also read the way it's written there, and then we'll make some additional comments. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. 
I think we each can see the point. It might well be that my job, I'm not particularly thrilled with it, but I've got to do it to take care of the needs of myself and my family, but I don't particularly care about doing the best job I can because I don't like it. Paul said, don't do that. He said, do it heartily because you're doing it for the Lord. Doesn't that give you and me a sense of the tremendous responsibility that's ours? Those tasks, those jobs that we do. God has provided us the opportunities and the skills and talents to do them. But He says, do them not merely as eye-pleasers to men. Do them because the Lord's watching you. And He's the one we're trying to please. Could we ask it like this? Did Jesus always do His best at every task He was doing? Whether it was feeding 5,000, notice he said for them to sit down orderly in groups of 50 and he proceeded dutifully as well as without chaos to take care of the charge before him. He did it well. In Mark 7 verse 37 we read this statement, He hath done all things well. Now that's a powerful statement, isn't it? Because the word all indicates whatever it was that the master turned his attention to. He tried to do his best. You and I should strive to do the same. Maybe in light of those features, those considerations, it takes us to some of these remaining statements. We stopped reading a moment ago in verse 23 of Colossians 3, that admonition for you and me to do it heartily. But notice verse 24. There's something you and I are able to know. It says, Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. May I say that that task that you and I are called on to do, maybe it isn't enjoyable because it's not particularly fun. It might be hard. But may we always remember God's watching and He will reward for a job well done. He will reward for those who invest themselves for carrying out those duties responsibly. And always set before others that blessed and powerful light of Christianity. Verse number 25 goes on to say, But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. God is watching, it, not he? And so when I'm on the job, when you're on the job, God's watching what we're doing. It isn't just the boss and it isn't just the manager. We have an all-seeing eye of our Heavenly Father who is well aware of what we're doing and if we're trying our best or if we're only serving to please men. Perhaps it's fascinating to notice one final brief passage taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Although it again has to do with servants, I thought it very fitting to include it at this point in the lesson tonight. 1 Timothy 6 verses 1 and 2. As you and I think about the kind of work that we're called upon to do, please notice as we've noticed throughout the lesson, sometimes it's not always seen by men to be honorable. But we've just learned that God watches and listen to how this states it. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. It's the closing part of verse 1 I would ask you to consider with me. 
as Paul wrote to these servants, he says, As many of you as are servants, count your masters worthy of honor. Now again, those masters may have been mean. They may have been terrible individuals in light of humanity at least. But Paul wrote to these individuals and said, You count them worthy of honor. You may not approve all that they do, and what they do may well often not be something a Christian could uphold, but at least respect them as people and honor the office they occupy. Sometimes you and I have to approach the matters of our civil authorities that way, don't they? We may not always approve the particular position a president may take or a legislator or a senator, but at least as Christians we have to honor the fact the office exists and the fact that those individuals are occupying an office of authority that was in fact established by God Himself. Something like that's also true in a place like this one, isn't it? And so it is in verse number 2. You'll notice if they have believing masters, don't despise them. Isn't it true then, near the close of this slide, we are ready then to draw some final conclusions and the lesson will be yours. Because not only are these statements you see appropriate for those that would be the employees, what about the employers? And we'll use that to close our lesson. Back to Colossians chapter 3. You see, we stopped reading a moment ago at verse 25. But you'll notice the next chapter actually starts in such a way that these words are are also important. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal. If you happen to be an employer, one who is over the work particulars of others... May all of us be aware of the fact that if we're in that position, God expects some things of us. He expects us to give to our employees, to those that are beneath us, justice and equality. We shouldn't be playing favorites. We shouldn't, in fact, involve ourselves in matters that would be looked upon as the opposite of this. We need to be those that are given to justness, equality, Proper Christian attitude without partiality in all cases. 1 Timothy 5 verse 21. Maybe it's in light of those things, these concluding remarks are fair enough, and as I mentioned, we'll use them to close our lesson. Whether it be employer or employee, whether it be a person whose menial tasks are often looked upon with dishonor, or the one who is blessed to work in a way that men would see as greatly honorable, The Word of God has given us some principles that we can use to help us so that our work will always be in such a way it brings the benefit God would have it to do. What about the work that you and I choose to do? May we do it heartily as to the Lord because we serve the Lord Christ. And with that, let's close our lesson with Revelation 14, 13. For isn't it true that we are looking for a day when we will lay aside the toils and the labors of this life because we look for a time of rest for the life after this one. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Are you living in such a way that your life is such that you'll be able to leave this life in harmony and in peace and in rest? Let me say, there will be no rest for those that die unfaithful. 
was the rich man at rest in Luke 16. He was in torment, wasn't he? But you notice Lazarus was one who enjoyed the peacefulness, the restfulness. May you and I live wisely so that whether it is the characteristic ways that we serve our Lord or whether it be the work we do day by day, we'll always live in such a way that the Christian influence will be seen forth in us. Tonight, if there would be anybody in the audience that would find yourself separated from the Master, why not come at once to His loving side? The plan of salvation is you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and we'd be happy to assist you in baptizing you. If you have become a Christian, though, and you have wandered away from the fold of faithfulness, maybe you, your work has become to be a drudgery to the point where you really have a strong disdain for it, and because of that, you don't have a good Christian attitude and influence. Allow Christ to work within you again to cause your life to be the positive thing it can be. If we could pray to God on your behalf tonight, we'd be happy to do that too. And if we could assist anybody in any of these ways, don't delay, but come now while together we stand and while we sing.